Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. This is the latest installment in Origins of the First World War, in which I've been starting off by discussing the politics, the dynamics of each of the combatant states that entered into this war in its first few months. I started off with the Ottoman Empire because it forms so much of the crucial background of this war. And I've gone through Serbia, Russia, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and also had a special installment for patrons on Bosnia. My last one, number seven, was on Belgium and Luxembourg. And now this one will be part eight, France. And this lecture will be brought to you by the letter O. Now, France is obviously very significant here. It is the last power on the European continent that I'm going to discuss in this series. And it was only pulled into this war after it had already started previously in Eastern Europe. So in some ways, you could see it as sort of secondary or even peripheral to the story of how the First World War came about, which is what we're trying to understand here. But at the same time, it clearly must be very important because for centuries, France had really been the heart of Europe. Not necessarily in the geographic sense, it is to the west of Central Europe, but nonetheless, politically, socially, culturally, France had been the largest, most powerful state, not only in Europe, but in Western civilization, really, at the forefront of all the new sciences of governance and warfare. And France was special and unique in that it was the only European state that was at once a major power on land within Europe and at the same time overseas with a global colonial empire. So it was uniquely Janus-faced, maintaining feet on sea and on land at once. And Paris, of course, was by far the largest city in France, and for most of the early modern era, it was the largest city in Europe, the great center of art, music, fashion, and high culture. But nonetheless, by 1914, France was clearly falling behind in various ways, in population, in industrial production, and in military and diplomatic power. So even as Paris continued to flourish and arguably entered into an especially illustrious period in the so-called Belle Epoque between the 1890s and the 1910s, nonetheless there was a heightening fear of decline within France and of being overtaken and losing their position at the forefront of Western civilization. Also at the same time, France is very important because it is the first victor state that we're going to discuss in this series. So France was one of the four victorious powers, along with Great Britain, Italy, and the United States, that basically dictated the terms of the Treaty of Versailles when the war ended. And so in this way, France is crucial because it was a foremost state in defining the war and in putting forward the first narrative of how the war came about and who was to blame, putting the blame, of course, primarily on Germany. But if one looks at the events and processes leading up to the war, one can find many remarkable parallels between France and Germany in their mutual fear and antagonism, eyeing each other warily and fearfully across the Rhine River, 
and in their moves to contain one another politically and diplomatically. And specifically France, even more so than Germany, France paid very close attention to the rising tension in the Balkans. And arguably France contributed significantly to raising the stakes of any possible conflict that might break out in the Balkans between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. So to give a brief preview of what I'm going to try to discuss and get across in this lecture, I left off, I think a couple of years ago, I recorded and posted a lecture on France in the Bourbon era in the, the age of absolutism, going up to just before the crisis of 1789. And I will basically try to pick up the story from there. But I cannot get deeply into all the details and vicissitudes of French politics, which even more so than these other nations we've been talking about, like Germany and Russia, French politics were incredibly complex and tumultuous. Over the course of just 1789 to 1914, so about the 125 years before this war, France went through a total of at least eight different constitutional regimes, arguably more than that, depending on exactly how you count. And it went through many times more ministerial governments that often came and went rising and falling like a sort of political Ferris wheel. So what I will try to do is briefly summarize the political problems that arose in the 18th century, briefly just summarize the unfolding of the French Revolution and the regimes that followed after it. But most importantly, I'm going to try to distill and describe the persistent conditions that characterized French politics all the way from the beginning of the revolution in 1789, all the way up through the 19th century into the Belle Epoque and up to the beginning of this war. And I'll try to discuss how these conditions within France shaped France's territorial expansion and foreign policy, necessarily linking France into conflicts in Eastern Europe, which otherwise might seem unrelated. And lastly, I'll try to comment on how the events in France illustrate certain fundamental epistemic problems with explaining international events like the outbreak of World War I, in particular how discrete actions and decisions are both offensive and defensive at once, how the same action can be both active and reactive depending on the context and the perspective with which one looks at it. And hence, for these reasons, it's really impossible to pin down a single decisive moment or a single guilty party that one can hold responsible for an event like the First World War. But just to back up and, again, try to explain why this is such a significant country and significant subject, France is exceptional because of how powerful and central it was to European civilization. And France is fundamentally paradoxical. It was at once the most unified and the most divided nation in Europe. It was remarkably unified in terms of language, customs, and institutions, while at the same time it was the most deeply and fiercely polarized, as reflected in these unstable and combative politics and frequently changing regimes. And this paradox is rooted firstly in the geography of France. So France occupies a fairly clearly 
defined geographic zone, which one can observe on a topographic map fairly easily. It is the main central landmass of Western Europe, and it forms a shape that in French is often called l'hexagon, the hexagon. So the hexagon can be described as having basically six clear, mostly natural borders. On the east, it's defined by the Alps, running from the Rhine River Valley in the north down to the Mediterranean. On the southeast, by the Mediterranean coast. On the southwest, by the Pyrenees Mountains, which separate France from Spain. On the west, by the Atlantic Ocean. On the northwest, by the English Channel. And on the northeast, by the border with Belgium and Luxembourg, which, out of all the borders of France, is the only one that doesn't have a clear, strong natural barrier, and that has been the most disputed and the most open to attack through the history of France. But with that exception, or if you imagine drawing a sort of artificial fortified line cutting across that northeastern frontier with Belgium, you basically have a clearly defined hexagonal shape that is mostly naturally defensible and within which it is fairly easy to govern and control a discrete territory. And this basic landmass of the hexagon was consolidated fairly early on. It was united under the rule of the Carolingian monarchy in the early Middle Ages. After the breakup of the Carolingian Empire, this zone that had been just sort of the western part of the Franks Empire, it persisted and basically crystallized as a single kingdom under the name of Francia, or later France. This region formed its own distinctive language relatively early on, no later than the 800s. So vulgar Latin was really the common language of most of Western Europe, even through the Carolingian era. But in this kingdom of Francia, very quickly a distinct Romance language took shape, which we now call early French, and evidence of this new distinct language is seen as early as the so-called Strasbourg Oaths in the early 800s, in which the armies of the different successor states that broke off from the Carolingian Empire, the soldiers took oaths in their own vernacular language to maintain the peace and not go to war with one another. And the Frankish troops in Francia took their oath in what looks like an early form of French. Now, through the Middle Ages, French had many different dialects, and especially these dialects were divided between north and south, between the so-called Languedoc in the north and Languedoc in the south. But ultimately, the northern form won out, basically as a result of the Albigensian Crusade in the 1200s when northern France basically established its rule, centralized from Paris, and imposed their form of the language throughout France. And then in the centuries after that, the royal government, especially under the Bourbon dynasty, made an intentional effort to standardize and consolidate the language. For example, founding the Académie Française in 1634 to create consistent rules for the French language as a language of administration, governance, and then also literature, theater. And it fostered the sense of a single shared civilization in which all French-speaking people were a part. And this 
sort of linguistic campaign went along with a forcible political and military campaign to disarm local warlords, destroy their castles and fortifications, to break down internal trade barriers among the different regions and domains within France, to take power away from these local lords and potentates, and over time, more slowly, also to disempower or dissolve their regional councils and parliaments and create a single, unified, absolute monarchy. And this, of course, reached its height under Louis XIV, who had a basic broad success in concentrating all polit- political dealings in France in the court at Versailles under the direct eye of the king. By this time, by the end of the 1600s, France had become the most effectively centralized large state in Europe or possibly in the whole world. It was uniquely, as I said, able to function as a Janus-faced power, maintaining control and holding the line effectively on the European continent, exercising great diplomatic power in European affairs, and also at the same time projecting power overseas, building a colonial empire in North America, the Caribbean, and India to rival the empires of the Dutch and the British, who were the foremost naval powers of Europe. But this Janus-faced position was very difficult to maintain. It brought the state into enormous debt. And France did not have as strong a domestic banking system as the Netherlands or especially Britain. And a lot of France's resources in this colonial enterprise were invested in a small number of risky undertakings, many of which then failed. And they didn't have as good a system of hedging to absorb risks. And so a lot of money and prestige were invested in failed ventures that turned out in disaster particularly in the Mississippi Company, which was set up in the early 1700s by a Scottish adventurer and professional gambler named John Law. And the idea was to build up the Louisiana colony in North America. It got royal patronage and support and encouraged wide investment in the Mississippi Company in the hopes that the company would then be able to pay off the debts left over from Louis XIV's wars. And This was inflated into an enormous bubble in the 1710s, which then collapsed catastrophically in 1720, with the crown left to absorb a lot of the losses. And over time through the mid-1700s, the French state was able to recover somewhat, especially with renewed prosperity and with good trade, including with other colonies. But nonetheless, the crown went into severe debt again after the loss of the Seven Years' War, And then the American Revolution, in which the French were able to gain a victory with their American allies, but again at enormous expense. And this added on top of the costs of maintaining the largest standing armies in Europe in order to maintain their position on the European continent and maintaining the enormous, lavish, and often wasteful court at Versailles, which was seen as necessary to maintain centralized rule around the crown. So over the course of the later 1700s, the crown employed a series of many different finance ministers to try out different ways of getting more revenue to pay off the state's debts. And eventually they had to conclude that they had to tax the wealthy, which in France most of all meant the landowners. Most of the wealth of France still was in the form of 
land. This was an overwhelmingly agrarian society, and the land was held overwhelmingly by the nobility and the church, both of whom were traditionally exempt from taxes on land. So over the course of the 1700s, as the crown pushed little by little to try to squeeze revenue out of the wealthiest classes and institutions in society, there was a gradual pushback, a reassertion of power by the aristocracy, especially through their councils called parlements. And these councils and the class they represented wanted naturally to protect their interests and to extract concessions in return from the crown for any new taxes that they might have to pay. And in doing so, they often used sort of civic humanist rhetoric, arguing that they represented society as a whole and the ancient French constitution. But of course, when push came to shove, it was really about protecting their own wealth and power. Also, at the same time, as many of you probably know, there was a growing literate bourgeoisie in the cities and towns who managed a lot of the growing trade and also much of the military and the colonies. And these also tried to seek a voice in politics and in society. And many of them turned to new ideas that were circulating in the popular press, to religious mysticism, skepticism, anti-clericalism. A large portion of the middle class and the sort of more modest aristocracy embraced Jansenism, which was a Catholic neo-Augustinian movement that emphasized internal and pietistic modes of religion and that de-emphasized the sacrament of communion and the role of the clergy. They also experimented, of course, with secular theories of politics and state authority, constitutionalism, the idea of a social contract, and different varieties of civic humanism or even republicanism. So more and more, these different classes trying to assert their interests were butting heads with this kind of ongoing campaign by the crown to somehow extract more wealth and revenue out of society to pay off the enormous debts in which the crown was mired. And this situation, of course, came to a head in the 1780s with a period, for one thing, of a bad economy and several poor harvests. And at the same time, that this agricultural depression was hitting the aristocracy and the peasantry, the crown, meanwhile, was even more desperate for revenue and tried to institute new taxes on land. So eventually, as the leading notables around the country vocally rejected this campaign to raise revenue, the crown, finally in 1788, was compelled to agree to call together the Estates General, a sort of kingdom-wide parlement representing the three estates of society, to discuss and hopefully approve new taxes. And this was a momentous decision because Estates General had really been sidelined and more or less unofficially abolished in the Bourbon era and had not met since 1614. But nonetheless, it was convoked and actually met at Versailles in May 1789. And when debate in the Estates General basically went the wrong way and the Crown lost control of the conversation, they shut it down. They locked the doors and particularly tried to stop the, the representatives of the Third Estate, the commoners, from meeting. 
Nonetheless, they, of course, withdrew to a so-called tennis court, which is actually a jeu de pomme court, but, you know, who's counting? And they met on their own and swore an oath to create a constitution for France. And this was the beginning, then, of what we call the French Revolution. So these events ended up touching off a decade of political upheaval. And I will not, at this time, get into all the vicissitudes of this revolution. We, it's, it's just too complex. It, I'll probably save it for another time if people want to hear about the details of the French Revolution and how it unfolded. But what's important to note at this point is that even with the multiple changes in regime, the revolutionary government continued the crown's mission of centralization. The revolution did not reverse the Bourbons' campaign to centralize and consolidate power. It continued it and went further fully abolishing the regional parliaments and councils, abolishing local court systems and replacing them with a single national court system, and liquidating various intermediary quasi-state institutions like guilds and confraternities. And it divided France up into a series of small regions called departments that were purely administrative units with governing officials appointed centrally from Paris. So by the end of the revolution, France was a fully unitary state. All sovereignty was located in the capital. And what the revolution did in effect, and part of why the revolution was possible, was because power was so centralized in Paris, even before 1789, that all the revolution really had to do was just a decapitation strike. Right, Just knock over the king and replace him with some kind of quasi-republican body, like a national assembly or a parliament or a convention that would similarly rule from a central point in Paris. Now, the revolution that began in 1789 was followed by several more revolutions, coups, and restorations all through the 19th century. And again, I cannot get into the details of how all of these worked or why they happened. It's too much. But to understand the situation in the Third Republic, the, the regime that entered into the First World War, I will just give a brief rundown of this long succession of regimes, which everyone in France was very much aware of and was part of popular memory, even in 1914. So, in the early 1790s, there was firstly a few years of a constitutional monarchy with a national constituent or legislative assembly elected by restricted male suffrage. This was then replaced by the First Republic, led by a national convention elected by universal male suffrage, but which quickly came to be effectively dominated by the Committee of Public Safety and especially by Robespierre who more or less became the de facto ruler for about a year and a half during the so-called Reign of Terror. Then there was a directory. So this convention was stripped of powers and authority was consolidated in the hands of a smaller directory led by a small committee chosen by highly restricted suffrage. This then was overthrown in 1799 by Napoleon, who created a military dictatorship, eventually called the First Empire under the control of Napoleon, first as consul and then as emperor, and mainly run by military officers and close allies of the emperor. This then collapsed and was replaced by a restored Bourbon monarchy under a king brought to the throne as Louis XVIII. 
and then by his brother, Charles X, who succeeded him. And this lasted until 1830, when it was overthrown and replaced by the so-called July monarchy, or as it came to be called the bourgeois monarchy, under a distant relative of the Bourbons, Louis-Philippe, who accorded more power to the parliament and really ruled as a limited monarch in consultation with the parliament, much like one saw in Britain. This lasted for 18 years until it collapsed in 1848 and was replaced by a republic, which was formed and ruled very briefly by radical revolutionary republicans, including several socialists in Paris. This didn't last for very long, and it ended up being gradually overthrown by Louis Napoleon, a nephew of Napoleon, who was first elected as president of this republic, but then seized power in a gradual coup in the early 1850s, and who created the so-called Second Empire, which he saw as, you know, presented as the successor of the First Empire under Napoleon, but which actually lasted longer than the first and continued to rule until 1870, when it collapsed and was replaced then by a third republic, which was set up with a much more complex constitution with powers divided among two houses of a bicameral parliament, including a, an upper house, a senate with senators appointed for life. And this third republic was politically divided and unstable, but nonetheless, it did persist and eventually became entrenched. So it managed to hang on to power very precariously through the 1870s and 80s, but then reached some degree of stability, at least for a while in the 1890s, and lasted into the early 20th century through the First World War and even on into the 20s and 30s, until it was destroyed by the Nazis. So, what to take away from this sort of litany of changing regimes? Well, it can seem from this story that I've briefly summarized, as if France was in constant tumult, which in some ways it was, but this was partly superficial. It was in tumult mainly at the top in terms of exactly who was going to rule from Paris and how. But there was never any question that Paris would continue to be the center of power and that it would continue to rule over all of France. And really, if one looks at this succession of regimes, it was really a rotation of three basic types of regime. Republic, military empire, and royal monarchy. So the high-level oligarchs, again, sort of setting the agenda from Paris, might change. Under the Republic, it would be politicians who cultivated some sort of public support. Under a royal monarchy, it would be courtiers who gained the favor and patronage of the king. And in an empire, it would largely be military officers, people who rose to prominence by rising through the ranks of the military. But even still, as these changes happened, you would have basically the same set of professional bureaucrats and civil servants who would continue to run the state administration, even as the regimes changed. The church continued to be the most powerful institution in France, and similar circles of aristocratic and business oligarchs would run the economy. So a lot of civil society really remained the same, even as the regime bounced around from one form to another. 
And further, even many statesmen manage to transition from one regime to the next and show up repeatedly in different governments from decade to decade, such as most famously the foreign minister Talleyrand, who served firstly in Louis XVI's cabinet, so in the pre-revolutionary monarchy, then several years later in the Directory in the later years of the French Revolution, then in the Empire under Napoleon, and then again in the Bourbon Restoration Monarchy, and, and then further in the Bourgeois Monarchy under Louis-Philippe. And moreover, Talleyrand helped to manage and smooth over these transitions of power so that the country did not simply break down into chaos. So Talleyrand you can see as the prototypical pragmatic statesman who really kept the state functioning, even through revolutions and coups. Another important example for what we're talking about is Adolphe Thiers, who came to prominence in the mid-1800s as a liberal newspaper man, served for a time twice as prime minister for Louis-Philippe during the bourgeois monarchy, and then later as the first president of the Third Republic. And Thiers was crucial in really gaining broad support for this new republican state in the 1870s, which at first had very little public support, but which Thiers was able to give some measure of dignity and legitimacy because he was so long known as a leading figure and public servant of France. Moreover, if one looks at these repeated changes in regime, there are certain repeating patterns wherein each type of regime tended to fall in the same basic way over and over again. So as for royal monarchical regimes, they tended to fall in economic crises, So there would be a period of commercial or agricultural collapse, increased poverty, and drop in state revenue, which would force the crown then to appeal to the aristocracy and the bourgeoisie and the various moneyed classes for more money. And these classes then in turn would make demands, especially for greater power and voice in politics, and it would lead to periods of debate, ferment, restiveness, which the monarchy then at some point would start to suppress with censorship until the debate spilled out into marches, riots, often street violence, and the regime would collapse. And this is more or less what happened as I described in 1789. Then again in 1830, when the King Charles X tried to shut down the popular press. And then again in 1848, when in the midst of an economic depression, Louis-Philippe tried to reduce the powers of parliament to suppress dissent in the press and even political meetings and gatherings, which eventually then led to demonstrations, riots, and the shooting of crowds on the streets of Paris until Louis-Philippe was forced to abdicate and flee the country. A fine tradition of French monarchs. (laughs) Things are falling apart, you flee the country, usually to England. As for republics, these tended to collapse because of internal feuding, instability, factionalizing, causing chaotic governance, and frequent changes in the ministries. And this sort of situation of chaos, unpredictability, deadlock would then allow, it would open a path for a military dictator to seize power in a coup. And this is what happened with Napoleon in 1799 and again 
with Napoleon III, as he called himself in the early 1850s. Then as for the empires, these would collapse with military defeat. Right? They staked their prestige and legitimacy on the projection of military power. And so Napoleon's first empire collapsed with his massive failure in Russia and then his second defeat at Waterloo in 1815. And then the second empire collapsed when Napoleon was defeated catastrophically on the battlefield of Sedan by the Germans. And the emperor was taken captive. And the empress, basically when, when Napoleon III was taken captive by the Prussians and their German allies, it was presumed that the government would pass into the hands of the regent, namely his, his wife, the empress Eugenie. But she also uh, fled to England. So in the power vacuum, a temporary provisional so-called government of national defense was set up mainly by Republican politicians in Paris, which then uh, took up command of the government and started negotiating with the Prussians for peace. And these events in the Franco-Prussian War are very important to understand because they set up a lot of the conditions for the life of the Third Republic, which lasts through the rest of the 19th century and on into the 20th century. So in September 1870, after Napoleon III had been defeated and taken captive by the Germans, this provisional government was set up in Paris, and their foreign minister named Jules Favre met with Otto von Bismarck himself at a palace of the Rothschild family in France in order to discuss the terms of a truce. So it was clear that France was losing the war, and most of the French people in most of the country wanted to work out a peace. But Bismarck made enormous demands in this meeting with Jules Favre. So demands for hundreds of millions of francs in indemnities, the equivalent of billions of dollars in today's money. And also he demanded that France hand over the crucial provinces of Alsace and most of Lorraine. And these were basically border regions between France and the German-speaking lands, which Bismarck was endeavoring to unite into a single empire. They were ethnically mixed, although, at least in Lorraine, most of the people were French-speaking. They were also economically important, especially northern Lorraine was a center of industry and mining, particularly iron mining. So this was really a shocking and extraordinary demand presented by Bismarck, at least in the view of the French. It was much more steep of a price for peace than they thought was going to be demanded of them. And Favre expresses his shock. And according to records of the meeting, Bismarck said, quote, I am certain that at some future time, we shall have a fresh war with you, and we would wish to undertake it with every advantage, end quote. So he's saying, this is for military reasons. We want to have a forward fortified base on our border forcing you, and we want to be able to have our troops and weapons as close to Paris as possible so that we will have the advantage if another war breaks out. And reportedly Favre was so horrified, he broke down in tears and said, you wish to destroy France. Nonetheless, this provisional government under extreme duress did make an initial tentative agreement with the Germans, according to which they would hand over Alsace and Lorraine and pay these heavy indemnities. But they did not sign any final formal treaty. 
possibly because they knew how unpopular and divisive it would be, and they wanted to leave that uh, poisoned chalice onto the next government, whoever it was who came up and actually reestablished control over France. So the Germans, since there was no actual formal treaty, the Germans continued to march into France unopposed, and they encircled and laid siege to Paris with the intention of extorting the provisional government in Paris into signing a treaty, handing over Alsace and Lorraine. So in the midst of this moment of crisis, this unresolved crisis, with the capital largely cut off from the rest of the country, a plebiscite was held, setting up a new parliament and creating a so-called Third Republic. And most of the country at this point did want peace and to cut its losses. And so the newly formed Republican government did finally sign this treaty with these very harsh terms with Germany. But Paris continued overwhelmingly to oppose this treaty. And they were furious and wanted to hold out and resist the Germans. This capital had been besieged and was increasingly running out of food. There was starvation setting in. And through this extreme deprivation, it seems the Parisians felt instead of wanting to surrender, they wanted the rest of the country to rally and come to their aid and stop this, uh, this extortion of France. And they felt abandoned and then betrayed when the treaty was signed. And in particular, the armed national guards, basically civilian armed militias of Paris, refused to surrender and give up their arms. And this divide between Paris and the rest of the country led to the creation of the so-called Paris Commune, where control of the city was taken over by a so-called central committee representing the armed militias and various radical revolutionary groups in Paris. And after the treaty was signed and the Germans finally withdrew, rather than Paris being joyfully liberated, instead a sort of civil war broke out between the Republican government based in Versailles and this Paris Commune under the leadership of the Central Committee in Paris. And over the next several weeks, through May and June 1871, the Commune was violently suppressed in days of infamously bloody street fighting. So coming out of this horrible military defeat and this bloody civil conflict in the streets of Paris, the Republic had fairly little popular support. And even outside of Paris, it was viewed with great suspicion as many of the more conservative population of France associated even the word Republic with the chaos of the revolution and the reign of terror. But nonetheless, a sort of broad middle swath of French society at least passively accepted this new Republican regime as a lesser evil. At least it was not the Paris Commune, and at least it was not like this radical socialist regime that had seized power back in 1848. At least it seemed to be more moderate. And on the other hand, those who were more radical, who sympathized with the Paris Commune, accepted that at least the Third Republic was not a royal restoration and return to authoritarian rule. So the sort of broad middle basically acquiesced, even though there was almost no enthusiasm, there was at least acquiescence 
in the authority of this new republic. And so the Third Republic remained in place, but it was highly unstable through the 1870s. And it was able to hold on to power in large part because the monarchists were divided. So it does seem that probably a slight majority of the French people actually liked the idea of a a monarchical restoration. And when elections were held to the parliament of this new republic, most of the deputies in the lower chamber were monarchists. But the saving grace from the point of view of the republic was that at least the monarchists were divided. So for one thing, they were divided between Bonapartists and royalists. And then the royalists, who were really the larger faction than the Bonapartists, the royalists were further divided between so-called legitimists and Orleanists. So the legitimists were those who said, we want the real king. That means whoever is the legitimate successor in the Bourbon line must be king. But then there were some who wanted a royal restoration, but they looked at the current Bourbon claimant, the Count of Chambord, and he was an arch-reactionary. Not only did he want to reclaim the throne, but he even rejected the symbols and trappings of the new France, such as the tricolor flag, which had originated during the revolution, and the Marseillaise, the revolutionary national anthem. And this signaled that he wanted to completely roll back every all the reforms and changes really of the 19th century and maybe even the French Revolution and wanted to rule as an absolute monarch like the Ancien Régime. And that was going too far, even for many royalists. So some royalists broke away and instead called for the Count de Chambord to abdicate his claim so that it could pass to a distant relative who came from a different branch of the family, the Orléans branch, which they saw as more modern and more willing to kind of accommodate the new freedoms, the new liberalism, the new egalitarianism and secularism of modern France. So the monarchists in this way were deeply divided, right, between Bonapartists, Legitimists, and Orleanists, and they couldn't come together around any scheme of who should succeed and take up rule. And so basically, the republic just persisted basically by default. And as it dragged on, and as many different ministries rose and fell and were constantly reshuffled with all kinds of factional feuding in the House of Deputies, Many expected that eventually this republic, like the First and Second Republics, would also eventually be overthrown in a coup, especially by a military officer. And for a time, in the later 1880s, a movement did coalesce around the minister of war named Georges Boulanger, whose supporters tried to make moves to prepare for a possible coup in 1889. But the whole conspiracy collapsed because the leader himself, Boulanger, gave up and fled the country. So in effect, all through the 19th century, these various French governments and regimes, including the Third Republic, seemed always to be on edge, always precarious, and always liable to possibly collapse or be overthrown. And the big overriding reason for this, again, is the country's extreme centralization, where all power was concentrated in Paris, 
And hence, all that was needed in order to effect dramatic change was a decapitation strike with some conspiratorial group or, alternatively, mobs of the Parisian poor who were increasingly numerous and could really exert real power in politics for some group or movement to join together and seize control of the central government buildings like the Elysee Palace in Paris. And the extreme centralization and consolidation of power in France also had an effect on what sort of issues were debated and how. So in effect, all disputes and problems in France were nationalized. The country by the Third Republic had no local or regional-based parties like existed in many other countries, such as, say, the Catholic Party in Germany. And all local and regional issues were effectively liquidated into one single nationwide debate and nationwide power struggle. So politics in France were really consumed increasingly by symbolic and emotionally charged social issues, which polarized society into ideological camps. So these issues, and I'll talk about what some of them were, cut across the lines of family, region, generation, and even class. Now, class was always important, of course, in French politics, as it was everywhere. But in the later 19th century and the early 20th century, class agendas and class ideologies were usually expressed through positions on binary black and white disputes over divisive social issues relating to religion, marriage, and the family. And it was, of course, in France that the whole concept of left and right was created. As I discussed in my lecture a few years ago on the myth of political left and right, this model of politics that everything can be divided according to a single axis and two camps, this came from the French Revolution and from the seating of representatives in the series of assemblies and conventions governing the country during the revolution, where those who identified with dramatic change and secularization and the republic sat to the left, and those who favored keeping some form of monarchy and church establishment sat to the right. And you got this model of left and right, which now has come to define politics in France and has been exported all throughout the Western world. So all of us are sort of repeating the, these same slogans and assumptions of left versus right. So this whole model is originally and fundamentally French, but it was always defined in, at root by symbolic cultural issues, especially relating to the role of the Catholic Church. And when I think about French politics in the Third Republic, and especially in the years leading up to the First World War, I always think of this wonderful political cartoon, which was published by the famous satirical cartoonist Caron Dache in a French newspaper in 1898. And it shows two images of a family in a dining room. And in the first one, they're all seated, men, women, children, along this long dining table, looking as if they're about to enjoy a feast. And then in the second panel, the room has been ransacked, the table is overturned, the dishes are smashed, and they're all punching and throttling one another. And the caption of that second image simply says, someone mentioned it. Now, it, in the context of the time when that cartoon was published, 
it was clear to all the readers that it was the Dreyfus Affair, a controversy around the conviction and condemnation of one particular army captain for alleged espionage four years earlier in 1894. And this affair, which came to be called simply l'affaire, became the burning, all-consuming issue of French politics for almost 10 years. And this cartoon, I think, encapsulates the sort of emotional power of this controversy and, again, the way it cut through local communities and families and arrayed people into feuding camps. What's also remarkable about it, I think, is that a lot of people probably listening to this lecture today can identify (laughs) with that exact scene, right? You could fill in a different it. Almost every year, there's a different it that could be put into that blank as the thing that people fight about and that divides family gatherings and makes them devolve into shouting matches or punching matches, perhaps. (laughs) We are in many ways living in the political aftermath and the political channels set for us by post-revolutionary France and that are exemplified by the politics of the Third Republic. And in many ways, I would say the great gift of modern France Just as much as literature and art, just as much as military tactics and technology or modern medicine rooted in germ theory, the great gift of modern France to the Western world is the culture war. France created the culture war and we all accept it from them gratefully. And there are reasons one can see that that I've been alluding to and describing here why France was the original home of the culture war. And it's rooted to a great degree in France's historical situation. France was traditionally, almost from its first creation in the Carolingian era, France was a major ally of the papacy. And this goes all the way back to Charlemagne's special role as supporter and protector of the Pope, who in turn conferred upon Charlemagne the title of emperor. And France continued to be a pillar of support for the papacy for a time, for several decades in the 1300s, the papacy even relocated from Rome to Avignon in France. And in the modern age, France has been a bulwark of Catholicism, for for instance, rolling back the Protestant Reformation and providing a sort of northern frontier for the Catholic Church in Europe. And the church all the way through to the 19th century, the church was the largest and most powerful social institution in France. It was the biggest landowner. It largely controlled the education system, which was very extensive, the charity system, which was run largely through mendicant and monastic houses. And it was also a great outlet for the activities and ambitions of women. It was through joining convents or the clergy that women could become teachers, nurses, missionaries, abbesses. And through these different avenues, the horizons of French women were widened, much more so than in many other parts of Europe. And it's not surprising then that often through much of French history, the bulwark of church power in French society has been women. And to a great degree, the culture wars in France have also been gender wars. And this is part of why the secular Republican Third Republic never gave women the right to vote, because they were afraid that women would be too supportive of the church. And hence, women 
only gained the right to vote in France in 1944, following the liberation in World War II, much later than women in, say, Great Britain or the United States. So France has always been this bulwark of Catholicism in which the church is very deeply rooted in society. But also at the same time, as I discussed earlier, France has a large middle class, a bourgeoisie, which is widely literate and moreover literate in a commonly known standardized language, which allows for a flourishing popular press, a vibrant republic of letters, and in which skeptical and secular worldviews can be fostered and propagated. And this could lead to great resentment of the powerful clergy and resentment of church control over doctrine, teaching, and education, and church exercise of censorship. And so France became not only the great bulwark of Catholicism and pillar of the papacy, but a, also an ideological battleground over the proper role and significance of the church. And so France has been repeatedly engulfed by ideological fights relating to the church, such as the control over land, the power of the great religious orders, family matters, including, first of all, divorce. The first act of the Revolutionary Legislative Assembly during the early years of the Revolution was to legalize divorce. And this has continued to be a culture war with a tug of war back and forth decade after decade over whether divorce should be legal and on what terms. And furthermore, this fight was then exported from France to other countries. Also fights over the power to appoint clergy. Are clergy appointed in France by the Vatican or by the state? And while the Legislative Assembly in the French Revolution was able to legalize divorce fairly quickly and easily without a big fight, the first real battle of the Revolution following, you know, seizing the Bastille, the first political battle was over the so-called civil constitution of the clergy of 1790, which tried to impose state regulation on the activities of the clergy and to stipulate that appointments of bishops and priests had to be approved by the state. And also, probably most persistently and most significantly, the fight over control of education. There are frequently repeating battles in France between the church and secularists over who will run the schools, who will teach in them, and what the curriculum will be. So we can talk today, of course, about constant fights, right? School board fights over the curriculum. What books are in the libraries? What lessons are taught in the science classroom or the history classroom? All of this has already happened many times over in France. And basically, these repeated fights, these persistent dividing lines in France, create more or less two feuding camps that not only see the world differently, but in a sense are kind of two different countries or exist on like two different planets. And I think that this polarization was captured very astutely very early on by the novelist Stendhal, who published a novel in 1830. So just as the Bourbon Restoration regime was falling apart, Stendhal published a novel called Le Rouge et le Noir, and it follows a young Frenchman who is very ambitious and who wants to rise in the world. And he has to choose between joining the church or the army, because these were the two main avenues by which a person of modest background could advance himself. And the title of the novel, Le Rouge et le Noir, 
comes originally from a popular card game in which the cards would the deck would be separated according to the color of the suit black or red but also at the same time it's a reference to the church and the army right the black of the churchman's robes the red of the army uniforms and this opposition symbolizes the deepening divide between two different sides of france or arguably two different frances that exist in tension the black france le noir that is conservative fiercely catholic and monarchist and the red france le rouge that is republican secular and anti-clerical and further it's no coincidence that red is the color of the army uniforms which had been the the avenue for revolutionary projection of power right the france's battles against the reactionary powers of Prussia and Austria. Also, it is the color of the revolutionary banners, right? The, and, and then later of the socialists' banners who present themselves as the successors of the French Revolution. So you have this divide between black and red. This is an ideological division, not regional, not confessional. Like France is overwhelmingly Catholic with very you know, minuscule minorities of Jews, Protestants, and some atheists. But it is not a confessional divide, nor even really properly a political divide. It's not about class or the distribution of resources or power. Everyone knows power is centered in the national government in Paris. Rather, it's an ideological and sociological fight about the role of the Catholic Church. So even though the overwhelming majority of the country everywhere is Catholic, there's a divide between seeing the church as a venue for private faith and devotion versus seeing it as a shaping pillar of civil society. Okay, so this is what I would see, again, as the basic persistent underlying conditions and assumptions of French politics that take shape fairly quickly during the French Revolution and then persist all the way through the 19th century and through the age of the Third Republic. But then what were the actual issues and problems that the Third Republic was dealing with and that affected how they approached foreign affairs and eventually the First World War. Well, the Republic was governed by unstable, shifting political alliances, mainly between two basic factions of Republicans. Firstly, the opportunists, who were more moderate, who wanted to pursue reforms only when a good opportunity arose or only when it was opportune. You could compare these to the sort of incrementalists, right, centrist incrementalists of recent times. And then on the other hand, radical Republicans, those who wanted to really revolutionize society, especially by disestablishing and disempowering the church. So the opportunists and the radicals formed competing parties and they were able to basically create governments by tentatively cooperating with one another when necessary in order to keep the monarchists out of control. And they came together and cooperated, especially at moments when the republic itself seemed to be under threat, whether from a militant right wing or from a militant socialist left wing. In total, between 1870 and 1914, 50 different ministerial governments rose and fell. And during that same period of 44 years, there were only seven prime ministers of Great Britain. 
So this is an infinitely more unstable and unpredictable government at the ministerial level. But nonetheless, things were not as chaotic as they might seem from that incredible number, right? Most governments lasting less than one year. It was not as unstable or chaotic as it might seem because many of these changes in government were really just reshufflings of the same basic pool of ministers who rotate among different departments as ways of dispensing power and favors to different parties and factions in order to keep this Republican coalition together. But nonetheless, the important effect was that it made it very difficult to formulate long-term policies and implement long-term plans. Right? This, was, this was basically a government constantly in some sort of internal crisis. They did manage to achieve some degree of stability and more continuity in government after 1880, largely due to economic growth. So there was now finally a return to some degree of prosperity, and the Republican regime enjoyed some increase in support and popularity as prosperity came back. And in economics, the Third Republic largely followed and built upon the precedents set by the Second Empire, the previous regime that had been replaced by the Third Republic. And the Second Empire was able to hold power and had a certain degree of popularity also because of economic growth, mainly internally. So much as the First Empire, the Empire of Napoleon, had managed to hold on to public support thanks to wealth coming into the country from the conquests around Europe, the Second Empire strove to create wealth through internal development and industrialization. So Napoleon III's government oversaw a large expansion of the rail network in the 1850s and 60s in a way that almost managed to catch up to Great Britain, but still lagged behind. It also subsidized and supported new industries, especially iron mining and forging in the Northeast. So by the time the Third Republic came along, the country was still overwhelmingly rural, but it did have increasing broader prosperity and a growing standard of living. And in the 1880s, this was largely revived through similar policies. Also during the Second Empire, there was a massive rebuilding of Paris. So it was mainly in the 1860s that the slums of Paris were cleared and demolished and new neighborhoods built with wide avenues and grand apartment houses in the so-called Second Empire style, this sort of neoclassical or Renaissance style with mansard roofs. So a lot of the look of Paris that we know today came from this sort of urban renewal massive project in the Second Empire. And this project also improved living conditions for many people, but at the same time, it simply moved a lot of the poorest slums outward into the outlying suburbs or banlieues. The Second Empire also sought and pursued investment in major engineering projects abroad, overseen by French engineers. And this culminated most of all with the Suez Canal that was completed and opened in 1869, just the year before the fall of the Second Empire. So as for the Third Republic, there was some stagnation and even growing poverty, especially in the big cities in the 1870s. But then as the regime stabilized, they were able to resume these economic policies and restart a certain amount of growth after 1880. 
And partly this was through sponsoring further industrial growth and also through protectionism, which was more the trend in vogue in much of the world in the 1880s of high protective tariffs in order to keep out imported manufactured goods and support domestic industry. Also, in addition to this, the Third Republic saw a massive and unprecedented imperial expansion especially in Africa and Southeast Asia. And this was a really significant turn of events. So as for France's colonial history, like Great Britain, they had a sort of first empire, basically a, a string of small outposts and also settler colonies, mainly based most of all in North America and the Caribbean. This was decimated by France's loss in the Seven Years' War. But later in the 19th century, a new, you could say, uh, a sort of revived, different colonial empire was begun firstly tentatively under Louis-Philippe, and then much more so under Napoleon III in the Second Empire. And the important colonies included firstly Algeria, which France began to annex in 1830, followed then decade by decade by Tunisia to the east, Guinea uh, to the south, uh, south of Senegal, and parts of the Congo. But the French Empire really expanded most dramatically and aggressively under the Third Republic, which was seen as ironic by many people because, you know, it was an imperial venture. But it was really extended not under an imperial government, but under a republic. And very importantly, this included annexations and colonization of Southeast Asia, including Vietnam and Cambodia in 1877, followed by Laos in 1893. And these three countries were then combined into the sort of mega colony of Indochine or French Indochina. And there also was further advancement into Africa, westward into Morocco, which was reduced to a protectorate or basically de facto colony, southward to the Ivory Coast on the coast of West Africa, which was gradually taken over, and also deep into the interior of Africa, into countries like Niger that had barely been touched or contacted by Europeans in the interior of Africa. They also expanded east in Africa, creating a a base at Djibouti at the crucial uh, mouth of the Red Sea in 1884. And eventually this expansion led to an effort to try to link up the new French colonies in Eastern and Western Africa. And this came to a head then in the so-called Fashoda Crisis in 1898, when a French expeditionary force was moving eastward across the Sahel into Sudan in an effort to create a continuous band of French domination across Africa. And they, at the town of Fashoda, they ran into a British force that was marching southward from Egypt down into Sudan, trying to create a consolidated band of British control from north to south. So the French moving from west to east and the British moving from north to south kind of ran into each other, leading to a standoff and uncertainty about who would dominate this sort of fulcrum of Africa in Sudan. And more or less what happened is both forces just sat down, put their arms down, opened up some bottles of wine, and sent cables back to Europe saying, what do we do? (laughs) Who actually has claim over this zone of Sudan? And there was a period of diplomatic tension and feuding between Britain and France. But what ultimately happened, for reasons that I'll probably go back to in a minute, 
is the French decided to back down and said, this is not worth fighting with Britain over. Let the British have the right of way. And what ended up happening was the French controlled an enormous swath of Western and Central Africa, but they left Britain in control of this band from Egypt to Sudan and down southward into Kenya. So although the French decided to back down at Fashoda, nonetheless, this enormously expanded empire brought in a certain degree of wealth and also prestige to France. France now could once again put itself forward as a serious competitor to Great Britain, the foremost imperial power on the world stage. And the overseas empire also served as a crucial outlet Firstly, for excess population, which was a traditional role of overseas colonies for Europeans. You know, if you have, say, prisoners of war who had been captured in the Paris Commune, they could be sent to Algeria. And this kind of thing happened for decades. Also, many migrants who left Alsace-Lorraine when it was handed over to Germany. Many of them went to France, and the French government basically shipped them into these colonies in Africa and elsewhere, saying, go, go extend French power and don't be a burden to us here. It also became, especially after 1880, it became an outlet for disaffected monarchist military officers and courtiers. So, as I said, there was this large wing of monarchists in France, including a great number of rich, powerful people and people who had experience in government and warfare. And many of them were disgusted with the intrigue and factionalizing and the constant instability of the Third Republic. And they didn't want to sort of get themselves dirty in that kind of politics. So instead, they went abroad to colonize, extend French power and rule over these new colonies in Africa and Asia. And for the Republic, this was very useful because not only was it an outlet, it was a way to co-opt these old monarchists into service of the Republic, thus further bolstering and entrenching the Republican regime. And the most significant of these individuals, kind of their great leader, was named Louis-Hubert Lyotet, who was the Minister of War for many years in the Third Republic, who was more or less the architect of this new colonial system. He was called, quote, the royalist who gave an empire to the Republic, right? Emphasizing this strange irony. And he was a believer in and promoter of the so-called mission civilisatrice, the idea that France should take up a mission, much like you know Britain claimed to take up the white man's burden. Right? This was the French version, that they were spreading French-style civilization into the world abroad. And this provided a sort of shared common ground that could unite various different wings and factions in French politics around this sort of central shared mission of civilizing the world. Now, nonetheless, even as certain numbers of republicans and monarchists could kind of come together and cooperate around this imperial mission, it nonetheless was controversial among the French public and became increasingly unpopular. And this idea of, of a new empire and of this mission civilisatrice was rejected by both right-wing traditionalists and also by working-class leftists, especially in Paris. And over time, a new coalition formed, or at least a new alliance, you could say, formed, of left-wing populists and right-wing nationalists, 
who both rejected this imperial mission and this expanding empire, who saw it as a distraction and a drain on what should be the main focus of the republic, which was internal French issues, and who wanted to concentrate on defending the country at home, especially against the new perceived rising threat of Germany, which quickly rose to overtake France in population and in military power. So in the later 1880s, a partial realignment happened, where royalism, the idea of restoring either the Bourbons or the Bonapartes, really faded out and became sort of a vestige of the past. But nonetheless, many people, including many Republicans even, in and around Paris, refused to accept the loss of Alsace-Lorraine. And there was a widespread sense, especially in Paris, that that loss was unnecessary, that it had been a betrayal of the country, and that most of all, it was a betrayal of the French citizens of those provinces that were handed over and who had been sold out, basically, by the Republic. And many of whom also had, as I said, migrated into France or into the colonies like Algeria. And this wing of largely radical nationalist Republicans came to be called revanchiste, from the French word revanche, which can mean reconquest or revenge. So there's this sort of nursing of grievance and of this kind of aggrieved cause, a lot like irredentism in Italy. There was this sense that the focus of the national mission should be regaining of Alsace-Lorraine and even revenge, you could say, vengeance against Germany. Now, this was not necessarily a majority belief, but it was a movement and a presence in France. And the hopes of revanchists in the late 1880s focused around the minister of war, Georges Boulanger, who was a young, charismatic general who rapidly rose through the ranks, who was a good orator, was well-liked by the troops since he had improved their food and shelter and rations, and was seen to care for sort of the ordinary soldier, much like you could think of Julius Caesar in the later years of the Roman Republic. And Boulanger wanted, like the revanchists, to reorient the country away from the empire abroad and towards rebuilding strength at home in order to effectively stand up to Germany and ultimately retake Alsace and Lorraine. In 1889, Boulanger built up enormous support in the government civil service, in the church, and even on the streets of Paris, where he became something of a celebrity with people selling portraits and songs about Boulanger. He became a sort of modern political celebrity. But when the window of opportunity came in late 1889, it seems that Boulanger lost his nerve. The notion that he was plotting with conspirators to overthrow and seize power in Paris sort of reached the upper levels of government and the parliament. The parliament openly attacked him as a traitor plotting against the republic, and he fled abroad with his mistress, who then some months later died in Belgium of tuberculosis. And it seems Boulanger was grief-stricken, and after some sort of desperate attempts to drum up support abroad outside France, he returned to Belgium and shot himself over the grave of his mistress in the cemetery. And after this, the whole cause, Boulangism, had lost its leader, and really, to some degree, the whole cause of revanchism fizzled. And 
it can be seen as a sort of early instance, this moment in 1889. It can be seen as an early instance of a new political alignment where working class and middle class populism were joined together with militarism and a charismatic leader. And it can be seen arguably to presage fascism and sort of right-wing populist movements in many parts of the world, like Peronism in Argentina. But of course, we have to be very cautious because those things came decades later. It's easy to take things that are familiar with us to us now and project them back deep into the past, even when they're not the same. So after the demise of Boulanger, the Republic again lasted, it weathered the crisis, and it came after that point to be seen as basically permanent. But these authoritarian tendencies persisted and were channeled to some degree into militant nationalism, which at one point in 1898 to 99 again seemed to threaten a possible overthrow of the Republic. But before I get into that, in the 1890s, following on the heels of this Boulanger episode, there were a series of big scandals, various sorts of financial scandals, that also rocked the governing parties of the Republic. Most especially in 1892, there was a disaster involving the attempt to build a Panama Canal. So some of the same engineers who had been involved years earlier in building the Suez Canal proposed that they could then go to Central America and with French investment and support, build a similar canal through Panama. Now, this was always really a bad plan, for one thing, because the leading engineers, for some reason, assumed that they could just build a level canal cutting all the way through the Isthmus of Panama with no locks in the way that they had done at Suez. But Panama is mountainous. That was never really feasible. It was a bad plan. It went poorly. And it was covered up by false reports and false hype about the project's progress that were taken back to France. And this led again to another massive bubble and collapse, which by this point had become kind of a French tradition, right? And in this collapse, millions of small middle-class investors lost their savings and the state lost billions of francs. And this scandal was reported on and exposed largely in the right-wing press and it severely tainted many Republican politicians, most especially Georges Clemenceau, one of the leaders of the Radical Party. And it also gave an opportunity for certain right-wing monarchists and reactionaries to try to discredit the Republic entirely. And some polemicists adopted anti-Semitic rhetoric and conspiracy theories, basically alleging that these scandals, like the Panama Canal scandal, resulted from Jewish cabals controlling finance, the economy, and leftist politicians. And this sort of undercurrent, or you could say side current, of anti-Semitic paranoia then set the stage for the Dreyfus Affair. So the Dreyfus Affair became, as I said, the all-consuming furor, really of France, for almost a decade, even though it hinged on the supposed guilt or innocence of just one kind of mid-level French army officer. And many books have been written about the Dreyfus Affair. There are all kinds of vicissitudes and strange side stories. Some of it involves Oscar Wilde. I can't even get into that. But I will try to just summarize a few basic points of the Dreyfus Affair 
insofar as it relates to and reflects on the events leading up to the First World War, a war that in large part was fought on the border of France and Germany. So in 1894, the general staff, the sort of commanding central committee of the French army, found that someone in the general staff was spying and passing military secrets to Germany. A military court-martial convicted an army captain named Alfred Dreyfus, or Dreyfus in French, and sentenced Dreyfus to life in a penal colony on so-called Devil's Island on the coast of South America. Dreyfus, it seems, was picked out for blame for several reasons. One, he is Jewish. This makes him suspect to many people, especially those on the French right wing, who trade in anti-Semitic fears and conspiracy theories. Also, it's significant that Dreyfus is Alsatian. He was born and raised mainly in Alsace, which is that you know ethnically mixed border region. Dreyfus is Ashkenazi Jewish. So many Jews in France are Sephardic. They come from a Mediterranean heritage, tracing ultimately back to Spain. Well, Alsatian Jews are mostly Ashkenazi, meaning that they trace their ancestry more to the old Jewish communities of Germany. Their names are mostly German, such as Dreyfus, and they their main uh, shared vernacular language is Yiddish, which is basically Judeo-German. So in many ways, Dreyfus is already seen as foreign and suspect and somehow tainted by Germanness because of his heritage, in addition to being Jewish. So Dreyfus is convicted and sent to permanent exile on Devil's Island. While he is there, a group of leftist journalists examine the case and argue that it was a miscarriage of justice. They're able to show that a great deal of the evidence used against Dreyfus was flim-flam, such as, for example, the allegation of auto-forgery. So what happens basically in a nutshell is that French moles in the German embassy in, in Paris are able to find documents whereby some French informant is passing secret information to the Germans at their embassy. And they're able to recover some of these documents, which are handwritten. They are compared against Dreyfus's handwriting, and they're found to be totally different. So the prosecutors argue that this proves that Dreyfus is guilty because he's doing auto-forgery. He's intentionally masking his handwriting to look different. So this is an example of the sort of absurd, upside-down, left-is-right, black-is-white reasoning that was used to frame Dreyfus, and that is you know, often used to, to frame scapegoats from hated social groups. And these, they argue that the case illustrates how much right-wing and anti-Semitic beliefs have infiltrated and corrupted the army. So whereas the army back in Stendhal's era, you know, 60 years earlier, was seen as a representative of the Republican egalitarian secular France, these leftist journalists say that now it has moved into the right-wing ethno-nationalist camp, and they basically indict the army using Dreyfus and his trial as a symbol. 
So as the case comes to be publicized in the left-wing press and it gets a certain degree of buzz and attention, leading French writers and artists, many of whom are sort of prides of France, rally together to call for a retrial for Dreyfus. And petitions for this retrial are signed by luminaries like Émile Zola, Anatole France, Sarah Bernhardt, and the poet Charles Péguy. And these sort of, you could say, you know, thought leaders come to be grouped together and presented as, again, as kind of the pride of France, especially by the publisher Georges Clemenceau, right, who had been a leader of the Radical Party, had been tainted by the scandal of the Panama Canal, and who now inserted himself into this conversation and coined the term intellectual to describe these sort of, you could say, wise elders of French society who were coming together to call for a retrial for Dreyfus. So Clemenceau capitalizes on this issue and basically revives his career and again becomes the main leader of the radical left. The radical party took up Dreyfus's cause, made it a political issue, and they're opposed firstly, of course, by the army itself and to a great degree by the Catholic Church, which lines up in defense of the army against this left-wing attack. And the pro-army position is put forward also by right-wing parties and newspapers. And basically, the country begins to divide into two camps. As this debate more and more takes over politics, you get the camps of the Dreyfusade and the anti-Dreyfusade, right? with, with basically secular intellectuals and leftists on the Dreyfusade side, the church, the army, and the militant right wing on the anti-Dreyfusard camp. In 1897, journalists obtained leaked documents showing that almost surely the real spy was another general staff officer named Esterhazy. But Esterhazy was charged, but then quickly acquitted in a sham trial. So on the heels of this, in the early months of 1898, the renowned novelist Emile Zola, who was seen as kind of the voice of ordinary France, Emile Zola published an incendiary essay under the headline Jacques, I Accuse. And this essay specifically named the army officers that Zola believed had railroaded Dreyfus, falsified or misrepresented evidence, and that had intentionally left Esterhazy off the hook in order to cover up their crime. So as a result, Zola was charged and arrested for sedition because he was insulting the officers of the army. And the country was then further inflamed and thrown into a furious uproar on both sides, with those who had remained neutral increasingly forced to take positions. And the press and politicians were now divided dramatically into Dreyfusard and anti-Dreyfusard camps. Some extreme anti-Dreyfusards formed a series of paramilitary groups basically, you know, glorified gangs, and newspapers and orators stirred up anti-Semitic riots, in some places, you could say, presaging what would happen later in Germany on Kristallnacht. Moderate Republicans in government tried to stay neutral for as long as possible, but ultimately they came to see a serious threat to law and order in France and to the Republic itself, coming from the extreme anti-Dreyfusards and their often violent paramilitary tactics. The moderate Republicans were also furious at the church and the army for not taking a stand in defense of the Republic. 
And so moderate and radical Republicans were driven closer together. And in 1899, they formed a joint so-called Union in Defense of the Republic. In this way, radicals were brought into high levels of government for the first time. And under this Union in Defense of the Republic, the government forced the army to retry Dreyfus. But he was convicted all over again. So for the next several years, the Dreyfus Affair, or simply L'Affaire, dragged on and became the main driving force in French politics, even electoral politics. Passions were so high on both sides that revolution or civil war seemed possible. But the fact remained that it was quite clear when one looked even at the rudimentary facts, it was quite clear that Dreyfus was innocent and most of the public sympathized with his cause. So in 1902, another round of elections were finally held and the radicals who had been strongest in support of Dreyfus gained massively and became the largest party in the parliament and were able for the first time to form a new government under radical leadership. And the radicals remained the main party of government for the next 12 years from that time through the outbreak of the First World War. So with the radicals in power from 1902 onward, their main focus, their central agenda was the struggle to contain the powers of the army and the church which had been massively discredited and partisanized by their taking stands in the Dreyfus Affair. The radicals capitalized on this situation, and Clemenceau's slogan, who now vaulted to the forefront of French politics, his slogan was le clericalisme, voilà l'ennemi. Clericalism, that is the enemy. In 1906, the president formally pardoned Dreyfus, and they began to put that affair into the past. But they still continued in their campaign of reform and passed a series of new laws curtailing church powers and activities, shutting down Catholic parochial schools, disbanding almost all of the religious orders, and seizing and nationalizing church properties, which the church then was forced to lease from the state in order to use for worship. And after this initial period of anger and hostility, by about 1913, there was some degree of detente, with the church and the state under the radical government coming to a series of agreements to manage buildings jointly through local committees, including both clergy and lay people. But through this struggle, first over Dreyfus and then over these secularizing reforms, there was a lack of action on material economic issues. So the radicals were mainly middle class, and they were largely highly educated, intellectual, and they were occupied with these traditional social disputes that had continually roiled France for decades, and they were determined to win those sort of socio-cultural fights. But when it came to economic issues and labor issues, they basically wanted to protect middle class and business interests, and they had fairly little sympathy for laborers or the poor. In France, there was very little legislation about labor or poverty, basically just a series of workplace safety laws. But that was much less than had already been instituted years earlier in Germany and even by this point in Britain. And hence, in France, there was continued widespread reliance on private aid to relieve poverty. On the church, on the one hand, especially in the rural parts of France, and on secular mutual aid societies, especially in Paris, which could be, in many cases, very 
political, left-wing, and revolutionary. So basically, the radical government came to be challenged and more and more had to come to terms with the rising labor movement as unions gradually grew and became more militant. Union leaders and agitators formed the Socialist Party, led partly by uh, an elder statesman, Joseph Caillot, but also by a charismatic and idealistic leader, Jean Jaurès. And the socialists under Caillot and Jaurès gradually gained seats, mainly based in Paris, and were able to get some government posts as junior partners in government with the radicals. So as of about 1910 or so, the state was led by a broad leftist coalition government, dominated mainly by radicals, but also including some more conservative or right-leading moderate Republicans and some left-wing socialists. And once this sort of war with the church was concluded, they then had to finally deal with lingering problems that had been neglected in the midst of this social fight. So what were these sort of lingering issues and problems that loomed over the Third Republic and that had been sort of kept on the back burner in the midst of these uproars over Dreyfus and over the church? Well, the main one that formed the sort of constant background was the relative decline of France compared to other European powers. So already by 1900, France had clearly fallen behind in terms of industrial might and productivity and economic production. They had fallen from being the second industrial power in the world after Great Britain in the mid-1800s or under the, under the Second Empire. They fell to fourth falling behind first Germany and then even the United States. Now, the main reason for this decline was not lack of state investment. There was some state investment. It was not lack of technological innovation. Many advances in machinery and technology were coming from France. And it was not lack of productivity per capita. France was fairly economically productive per capita. The main reason was that the French population had flatlined. There was hardly any population growth in France after about 1860. And it took almost two decades, from 1883 to 1900, just for the population to inch upward from 39 million to 40 million. And then it surpassed 40 million only painfully slowly, with some years apparently even deaths outnumbering births. So by 1910, it seemed as if the country basically had stopped growing in population. And it continued, despite some industrial growth and success in, in some regions, it continued to still be well over 50% rural. Unlike, say, Britain or even Belgium, France remained solidly majority rural right up into the 20th century. And at this time, Britain and Germany were soaring past 60 million. So those countries had enormous reserve supplies of basically impoverished workers streaming into the cities who formed a pool of cheap labor that could then be exploited in industry and in the military through recruitment into the army. France just didn't have that. And nobody really knew why. Why was there this difference? And there were many different possibilities floated and discussed within France, such as too many French women were working, were going into offices in the workplace, becoming professionals, doctors, nurses. 
And it's true, a, a larger portion of French women did become workers and professionals than in other countries in Europe. But it wasn't that many. It wasn't so many that it seems as if it should have affected the fertility rate so dramatically. France also had a lot of women religious. Many women joined convents. Uh, there was a huge boom in convents back during the Bourbon Restoration period in the 1820s. But that had largely faded, and a lot of the religious orders, most of them were now shut down by 1910 under the Third Republic. So that doesn't seem like an adequate explanation either. Another factor that some historians now point to that might have played a role is the inheritance laws. So there was a long-standing tradition in France of dividing up one's estates among all of one's children. And under the republics, the Second and Third Republics, laws had been enacted actually mandating that estates and land had to be broken up evenly among all heirs, eventually including even daughters as well as sons. What this meant then is that if you were a rural family making your living off of land, which a lot of French people still were, then the more children you had, the more you had to divide up your estate into smaller and smaller lots. And it seems that incentivized having fewer children. And many French couples only married relatively later in life and had small numbers of children, such that by the 20th century, the fertility rate was barely over two. So the average woman had 2.1, 2.2 children, significantly lower than in other countries. And then when you factor in the death rate, the fact that there was still poverty, there was still disease, there was occasional warfare, you ended up with basically a, a stagnating population. Now, you know, having 40 million people isn't the worst thing, right? But it did matter a great deal to France politically because with this stagnating population, France's military strength was triply limited and curtailed by lower industrial production, fewer men to recruit or conscript into the army, and fewer railroads and infrastructure to move and mobilize that army when necessary. So in all of these ways where France had once been the greatest military state in Europe, it now seemed to be falling out of the first tier completely and becoming really only a secondary power in Europe with the new rising juggernaut of Germany right on their doorstep. So the real big fear was falling behind Germany and the danger of being suddenly attacked again by a larger army which could mobilize more quickly with their superior rail system. So what were these governments in the Third Republic to do? Well, for a long time, they didn't do any much of anything concerted to deal with this situation. But eventually, with some degree of stabilization under radical party leadership after about 1906, right, the end of the Dreyfus Affair, there was a redoubled effort to build up industry and especially rails to be able to mobilize more effectively. There also was a broad diplomatic reorientation, the move away from imperial expansion towards retrenchment within Europe. So as I said, there had long been a sort of affinity or loose alliance between the left wing and the right wing, which had a certain degree of common ground in wanting to set aside the colonial empire and focus instead on facing up to Germany at home in Europe. And this alliance had a sort of early appearance, you could say, in boulangisme 
And interestingly, it was actually Georges Clemenceau, the radical politician, who had first recommended Boulanger to be appointed as Secretary of War. So this sort of affinity was always there in the 1890s. Certain statesmen, ambassadors, undersecretaries, recognizing that France's diplomatic position needed to be reworked in order to build a sort of coalition to contain Germany. And in 1894, the French foreign ministry made a loose and basically private alliance with Russia called an entente cordiale, a cordial understanding that each of those countries would support the other in case of war with Germany. This was followed soon after by a rapprochement with Great Britain. So I mentioned in 1898, in the Fashoda crisis, the crisis was diffused because the French ministry, even though this was not popular with the press, the French ministry backed down, allowed the right-of-way to Great Britain, and began from that point onward slowly trying to rebuild a friendly relationship with Britain with the shared understanding that the real threat was Germany. In 1904, an entente cordiale is formed between France and Britain, and then Britain followed up with a secret agreement with Russia in 1907, hence forming the so-called Triple Entente, this triple understanding of the three great powers around Germany to the east and the west. So this Entente was really a loose alliance based around seeing Germany as the common threat. Also, it involved an agreement to stay out of each other's way overseas and avoid fighting or wasting resources over overseas colonies. Due to these new relationships, France was able to get other major powers, especially Britain, to accept France's effort to take over Morocco and hence make Morocco into a so-called protectorate in 1905. And when Germany objected to this move, basically the French were able to freeze them out and mostly get their way in 1905 and again in 1911, although with some compensating gestures to Germany. So this sort of trend was already in place, but it was solidified most of all by a new leader who came to the fore, Raymond Poincaré, who became prime minister in 1912 and then president of the republic in 1913. And Poincaré was a long-serving statesman who politically came from the so-called democratic alliance, basically a moderate to conservative-leaning republican party. And Poincaré was more experienced than most of the politicians who went into government in the Third Republic, and he was more capable of long-term strategic thinking. And so he quickly took up a leading role in this reorientation of French diplomacy. Now, another factor about Poincaré was that he was originally from Lorraine, and he had seen his own village invaded by German troops during the Franco-Prussian War, and later ceded to Germany in the treaty in 1871. Now, it's been debated and discussed, may his background and his experience in Lorraine have been a motive, a factor in his foreign policy. And it's hard to say, certainly. It does seem that he was a kind of moderate and covert revanchiste, in that he wanted it to be a principal aim to position France to eventually retake Alsace and Lorraine. 
But it's unclear exactly how committed he was to that goal and how much his own roots in Lorraine might have played into that. But regardless, he became PM in 1912 and then president in January 1913. Politically, he was an opponent of Georges Clemenceau and the radicals, but he makes an uneasy truce with the radical party and agrees to work together with them. And when he becomes president in 1913, Clemenceau replaced him as prime minister. So they basically have to form a cooperative relationship, and their common ground is in foreign policy, where they agree on focusing on Europe and opposing Germany. In 1913, Poincaré sponsored a new conscription law, which increased the term of service for a conscripted soldier in France from two years to three years. And this was a way of building up a larger army, despite their smaller population now, building up a large enough army for a possible fight with Germany. And it seems that Poincaré's position by that time was that some European war was inevitable. So the Balkan Wars in southeastern Europe break out in 1912 and 1913, with these new independent states in the Balkans attacking and seizing territory from the Ottomans. And more and more Poincaré and his allies believe it is likely that some sort of wider war may result from these struggles in the Balkans. And Poincaré's position is that France should seize the initiative in such a situation, rather than waiting for Germany to attack. In their view, if a war is going to come, it is advantageous if this war starts in the East, and if France therefore has some time to mobilize and act first, before Germany turns to the West and attacks them. And for these reasons, it seems, Poincaré and his allies insisted on taking a very firm line, or in French, fermeté, when it comes to the Balkans. They are committed to strongly backing their ally in Russia, as well as Russia's allies in the Balkans, like Serbia and Bulgaria. And this leads, it seems, Poincaré and his ministers to heighten the stakes over the Balkans. They pay very close attention to these power contests going on in Eastern Europe. They urge the Russians to take a hard line with Austria-Hungary, arguably even to the point of urging them on to war. And this is illustrated most specifically in talks that took place in 1912 during the First Balkan War, when that Balkan League is invading and seizing territory in the Ottoman province of Macedonia. So during that war, late in 1912, talks took place between Russian and French officials in Paris. And Austria, at this point, it seems, was monitoring the situation in the Balkans very closely as well. They didn't intervene, but they did build up troops along their eastern borders with Serbia and Russia, and Russia responded in kind, moving some of their troops to their western border with Austria-Hungary. It doesn't seem as if either side saw war between Russia and Austria as likely, but there was some degree of tension, and you could say of danger, as this troop buildup happened. So as this is going on in late 1912, the French Secretary of War, Millerand, held talks with the Russian military attaché in Paris named Ignatiev. And these conversations are recorded in Russian internal communiques. And the historian Christopher Clark has examined them. 
And according to Clark's account, Millerand, the French, French Secretary of War, asked Ignatieff, the Russian attaché, why are the Austrians building up troops on their border? Ignatieff responded that this was a defensive and precautionary move, and hence nothing to worry about. Millerand then asked, do the Austrians have plans to possibly attack Russia? Ignatieff reportedly responded, they didn't know, but the Russians were determined not to do anything that could threaten peace in Europe. Millerand then invoked Russia's alliance with Serbia and asked Ignatieff, so if Austria attacks Serbia, you will leave her hanging, undefended? And Ignatieff again demurred and said simply that they don't think it will come to that. Now, this conversation suggests, arguably, that the French, who privately acknowledged that they saw a possible strategic advantage in a war breaking out in the Balkans, that they actually pushed Russia to take a stronger stand over these Balkan struggles and specifically over defending Serbia. And again, their continually repeated watchword was fermeté, firmness. So the historian Christopher Clark, and I'll put a link to to his lecture where he discusses some of this. In Clark's view, the French here created a sort of diplomatic tripwire on the Austrian-Serbian border, which raised the stakes and almost ensured that if a conflict did break out between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, which seemed likely there was simmering tension, espionage, sabotage, assassinations, that that conflict would then blow up into a Europe-wide war involving Russia, Germany, and France. And even if one disagrees with this this argument about a, a tripwire, nonetheless, one can compare France's insistent support for Russia and Serbia to the German so-called blank check to Austria that came months later in July 1914 and which is often invoked to hold Germany responsible and blameworthy for the war. But here we can see France had already done effectively the same thing a year and a half earlier, and really even more forcefully than Germany did with regard to Austria-Hungary. Germany was not egging Austria on to go to war with Serbia. They just pledged that they would support them if it came to that. Whereas it seems as if France, if you look down into the nitty-gritty of these communications, France was actually almost urging Russia to commit to a war and were not making any accompanying efforts at restraint, like Germany did with regard to Austria. So hence, if Germany is to blame for this so-called blank check, is not France even more so for the way they involved themselves in the affairs of Eastern Europe? But of course, nonetheless, you know, irrespective of this combination, this comparison and weighing of French and German involvement, there is a big overall complication here, a problem, in that both promises, right, Germany's promise to support Austria-Hungary and France's insistence on fermeté towards Russia and Serbia, both promises can be seen as only defensive, right? The French were not saying we should take the initiative and attack. They were only trying to cement a firm position. So both of these promises can be seen as defensive, not aggressive, not acts of aggression. And this raises the question then of what is the line 
between standing firm with your allies on the one hand and instigating or egging them on on the other hand? And how does one judge that difference? And this is an illustration of a basic problem in that the same act or decision can be both defensive and offensive, depending on the perspective. It might be seen in opposite ways from different vantage points. And really, both may be true at once. So as, for instance, the foreign policy analyst John Mearsheimer has said, what seems to be containment from the point of view of those doing the containment can appear to be encirclement from the point of view of the country being encircled. So no country can ever know its interlocutors, its neighbors' intentions and internal thoughts perfectly. You're always judging by limited information. And what one party might see as purely precautionary, another party might see as preparation to attack. And this is another manifestation of the same basic epistemic problem. Actions never happen in a vacuum. They're always part of larger chains of events. And all actors on all sides might see their own stances as purely defensive and reactive. But at the same time, they have choices and their actions are ambiguous and may have multiple different possible intentions or outcomes so that any reaction is also in action. Any purely defensive move might also be at the same time an escalation. Now, nonetheless, in this particular case, there might be some reason to think that at least some French officials actually wanted this war, that they wanted a war in the abstract. They saw it as necessary to go to war with Germany again. They thought, as Bismarck himself said in 1870, that a war between France and Germany was bound to happen again sooner or later. And they believed that a war that started in the Balkans was better for their interests than one that began on the Rhine, where France would be under immediate attack by the superior power of Germany. And so whether they were entirely conscious of it or not, these French officials may have contributed to the conditions that did eventually lead to this specific war breaking out in 1914. Now, the final irony that I should point out to hopefully pull all of this together is that in July 1914, the French public was on high alert. So in the weeks following the assassination of the Archduke in Sarajevo, a record number of newspapers were selling on the streets of Paris and millions of French people were subscribing to daily extra editions of their favorite newspapers. Many of them were glued to every update that came through the news. But this was not because of the crisis in the Balkans, as some historians previously have wrongly assumed. Rather, it was because they were following a sensational murder trial in which a woman named Henriette Caillot, the wife of the radical party leader Joseph Caillot, was on trial because she had killed the editor of Le Figaro, a popular newspaper named Gaston Calmette, because he had published a series of letters by Joseph Caillot, which exposed his duplicity or alleged double dealings in French politics. And Henriette, Joseph's wife, considered this to be a dishonorable attack, and she feared that the attacks were only going to get worse. She urged her husband, Joseph, to challenge the editor, Gaston Calmette, to a duel. And he refused. 
So instead, she marched into the offices of Le Figaro herself, pulled out her pistol, and shot the editor multiple times until he was dead. She was arrested at the scene and taken to the infamous women's prison of Saint-Lazare. On trial, she and her lawyers claimed temporary insanity. They basically said that Joseph Caillot's failure to stand up to this editor and defend his honor had wrongly thrown that responsibility onto the wife, onto Henriette, and her female brain couldn't handle this sort of massive responsibility and it led her to go temporarily insane. So this trial became an enormous sensation. It touched off another culture war scandal involving marriage, sex, and the justice system. It was the subject of every column and of debates in cafes and satirical songs in the theaters and clubs. And one particular song that was sung at the Mayol Theater was composed in the voice of Marianne, the sort of mythical, symbolic female figure representing France, like, you know, sort of the equivalent to Uncle Sam in America. And this song went, quote, When I was quite young, I loved a little corporal, Napoleon. But he ill-treated me. I soon finished with Louis-Philippe. Then I had a new affair, another Prince Napoleon, and I loved him well. But for him I lost my two children, Alsace and Lorraine. Now I am growing old. I must pay for my lovers. My future is very dark. I have nothing but Saint-Lazare." So you can see here, the song is setting up this sort of allegorical narrative of the different rulers of France as lovers of Marianne. And now finally, she is paying the price for her sort of series of affairs and is being imprisoned at Saint-Lazare. And hence, the downfall of Henriette Caillot was taken in this song as symbolic of the decline and decadence of France in the Belle Epoque. So you may remember in my lecture a while ago about Germany, I said that for the German government, it was always about France, right? Well, to a great degree here too, for the French, it was always about France. There was always some internal fight. There was always some internal crisis absorbing people's passion and attention to the effect that everything else remained on the periphery concern about the Eastern European crisis really remained in small official circles and didn't leak out into public debate hardly at all. The main concern when the President Poincaré went to visit St. Petersburg on July 21st, just as this crisis was ramping up, the main concern was about this European crisis in that meeting. But in the French public square, it was totally drowned out by l'affaire Caillot just as debate had been totally consumed 15 years earlier by l'affaire Dreyfus, and also more specifically the left wing of politics, which was largely pacifist, was distracted because one of their two leaders was in the midst of this murder scandal. And the other leader, Jean Jaurès, did advocate for peaceable resolution to the crisis, arguing that workers and unions in France and Germany would see their shared interests, and if necessary, would go on strike to stop a war. But he was shot and killed by a right-wing militant in a cafe in Paris on July 31st. And regardless of that, whether there was ever any possibility that Jaurès or the socialists could sway events, nonetheless, war arrived regardless in the form of a German army marching through Belgium and into France, 
on August 3rd. But before we discuss how things escalated to that point, there are two other countries that entered the war in its first month. Those are Great Britain and Japan. So hopefully soon in the coming weeks and months, I'll continue the series by discussing Great Britain and Japan. I also will try to post another year in review discussing events of 2023 in historical context, as I did for the last two years. And again, I am tentatively scheduled to be the guest on The Katie Halper Show on December 26th. So hopefully that will go off well and you'll be able to see and listen to it. And lastly, I want to mention that I've been thinking and making tentative plans about more possible videos, which I know, you know, many of my listeners like some prefer audio lectures, which is great. That's mainly what I do. But just to forecast, my article that I wrote for Yale Journal of Law and the Humanities finally came out after more than a year of waiting. It's titled In the American Tempest, Democracy, Conspiracy and Machine. And it deals with the purported effects of the internet and technology on democracy. And I've been considering possibly making a video of it using my article and also the visuals that I used in my presentation at the symposium at Yale Law School. Also, I've been considering making a video series, a sort of set of short videos analyzing a recent movie. So I've talked a couple times about film in this podcast, but there's a movie that came out this year in August called Red, White, and Royal Blue, which absolutely fascinates me. It's a gay romance on the international theme, what's been traditionally called the international theme, the theme of differences between America and the old world, especially as represented by Britain. And I think this movie is very rich and revealing in all kinds of interesting ways, in what it says about the symbolic importance of the British crown and the royal family, the role that the crown plays in modern politics and social status, and also how the movie is constructed, its style, and what it says about modern taste and aesthetics, and also for that matter about sex and sexuality. So I've been thinking about it and I've floated the idea with my producer, Dan, But it is clearly a big departure from what I've usually done before. The only other time I've analyzed a film here was with The Green Knight, which was just a single audio lecture, not a video. So I'd be interested to understand and gauge whether this is something my patrons would be especially interested in and would want to support. I'd want to know if my patrons would be interested or willing to perhaps be charged once for the series, you know, in the same manner as a lecture, so that I could share that revenue then with my producer, Dan. So he would definitely be paid for his efforts because making this kind of video is a huge departure for me. So please, if that interests you or not, comment or message me, or perhaps later I'll post a poll on Patreon to gauge interest. And finally, as I said, this lecture was sponsored by the letter O. So I'd like to thank my current active patrons, Ot Cagovere and Oliver and also to give congratulations to Oliver and his wife, Margarita, on the birth of their second child on December 7th. Mazel tov, thank you.